Genesis chapter 8, verse 1, and then I am going to read all the way to Genesis chapter 9, verse 17. So I know that's a lot, but I, I, think, it, I think we need to read the whole thing. So Genesis chapter 8, verse 1, this is God's word. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the tenth month. In the, in the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of forty days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and, he, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So no one knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him any more. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by, the families, by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. And took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, Day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and, and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I, have given, and as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. 
and you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This is God's word. It's entirely true, and it's given to us in love. Let me pray, and then we'll just dive right in. God, thank you so much for this reminder of, of, of your remembering grace and mercy towards your people. God, help us, help us to be able to see that you are continuing to remember us, even just this reminder of, of, of your bow that is set in the clouds that we still see, even to this day, we still see that promise laid before us. And so God, help us to, to hear your word clearly today. Help it to, to change us, God. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see and minds to understand. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, just as a reminder <coughs> um, of the over, overarching theme of the entire book of Genesis is this whole idea of, of human flourishing. And not just human flourishing so that we can, um, that we can be healthy and wealthy and, and we can be a, happy, a happier person in life and everything's going to go our way, but it's human flourishing according to God. And that is the point of Genesis. The point of Genesis is to help us understand how to live rightly. And the way in which we live rightly is by bringing God glory. And you'll see that kind of come out in the text today. So since, since Genesis 3, everything kind of seems counter to this, though. Everything is, is fallen. Everything is, is broken. Uh, everything has changed dramatically. Human beings in their relationship with God is completely different, completely broken. But then you get here in our text, in Genesis chapter 8, verse 1, and we get a glimpse of hope. A glimpse of hope. And hope that, that sits in between the, the, the devastation of the fall and the destruction of the flood, and then the ongoing sin that immediately begins in chapter 9, verse 20. And we'll see that. The sin of Noah. Which lets us know that God has a particular plan for his creation. And the fact that he has not abandoned this plan is a testimony that he is going to preserve a people for himself. 
that he is not somehow waiting for us to kind of get our act together so that he can begin to, to do what he wants to do. God is not waiting for us to get it right because we will not ever get it right. But that he has a plan that is perfect and that his plan is ultimately for his glory and our good. So we'll see this plan unfold in three ways this morning. One, we'll see God remembering. Second, we'll see God recreating. And then third, we will see God renewing. So God remembering, recreating, and God renewing. So first, God remembering. It's estimated that, uh, that Noah, along with his family and all of these animals that he brought on the ark, it's estimated that, he's, that they spent uh, anywhere between 350 to 370 days inside the ark. So day after day, uh, night after night, seeing the same exact people and their family nonetheless, which would just be even more maddening, the same water, the same animals, doing the exact same thing, and really with no end in sight. God does not give him a, a, any kind of definitive timeline. He doesn't say, after this day, such and such, this is going to happen. This is when everything will end. You can mark it on your calendar. God doesn't tell Noah that. And even Noah, who is a man of faith, a man who is walking with God, the Bible tells us, he was still human after all. And I'm sure he had his doubts that began to arise after a few months in the ark, after the, the rains had stopped and they're just kind of floating, floating around, not really doing anything, not really going anywhere. And the doubts had to arise in this man's heart. I'm sure his wife was nagging him. His sons and his sons' wives were probably saying, what is going on? Where are we going? What is God doing? One 19th century expositor put Noah's possible train of thought in this way. Far down in the unfathomable depths below lies a dead and buried world. Noah, shut up in his prison, narrow prison, seems to be abandoned to his faith. He cannot help himself. And in this universal visitation of sin, this terrible reckoning with sinners, why should he obtain mercy? What is he that when all else are taken, he should be left? May he not be righteously suffered to perish after all? Is he not a sinner like the rest? Does he not feel himself to be the chief of sinners? Well, in this line of thinking, I think, is, it's perfectly normal. And Noah probably was asking the questions, has God abandoned me? Has he abandoned me and my family out here in the middle of nowhere? Maybe he has forgotten me. Maybe this is some kind of cruel punishment that God is putting me and my family to because I am way more sinful than all of those people that he crushed with the waters of the flood. Maybe so. Maybe these are questions that you're asking yourself. Maybe you, you've asked, why is God silent to my prayers? Why doesn't it seem like he, he hears me? Why, why, does he, why has he not given me a spouse yet? Why, why has he not given me a baby? 
Why has my life not turned out the way I dreamed it would when I was a kid? Why does life seem so hard? And then you're left with the question, has God abandoned me? Has God forgotten me? And if these are questions that you're asking yourself, whether they be today or sometime in the future, because they will come, chapter 8, verse 1, is the verse that you need to hear today. And just those first three words. God remembered Noah. So After the devastation of the flood, God remembers. And so what we have here, we, we literally have the hinge of the text before us in chapter 8, verse 1. And I'm not just saying that. that it, this is actually the, 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 the verse that lands in between um, the devastation of the flood and then the recreation afterwards. So this, this, this verse is actually the hinge here from destruction to recreation. And so from this moment on, everything has changed. So God didn't forget about Noah, we can remember, that God didn't forget about Noah and he doesn't forget about you because at this point in Genesis... This is the point in the story that communicates hope. Especially if you think yourself abandoned by God. Especially if you think God has forgotten you. Especially if you think God is silent to your prayers. So remembering in the Bible is something important to, to kind of think about. Because uh, this remembering by God is not the remembering of forgetfulness. It's not that God says, oh yes, I forgot about um, that guy Noah. Now that, now that you've reminded me, I need to go actually check in on that guy to see how he's doing. That is not what is happening here in the text. Remembering in the Bible is the remembering of promise. God doesn't forget his people. Even if you feel forgotten today, God has not forgotten you. Even if everybody else in your life has forgotten you, God has not forgotten you, and he never will. So the word remember in the Old Testament, as one scholar defines it, it says God's remembering always implies his, his movement toward the object. The essence of God's remembering lies in his acting towards someone because of a previous commitment. So God has already promised Noah, that he would remember him, that he would deliver him. So God is moving toward Noah here in three ways. First, he's, re he's moving towards Noah, one, by removing the water. If you saw, saw there in chapter 8, verse 1, God sends wind to remove the waters. That's his first act towards Noah. And in this first act towards Noah, removing the floods, is it, removing the floodwaters is, is also this symbolic gesture that, that God is removing the destruction, that God is removing this, his hand of judgment from the world. And so if it, it's his first act of, of recreating and renewing, which is what we'll look at here in just a second, of the world. That he's not leaving it as it is, but he's remembering the creation in this way. And so by removing the waters, we can see that we can trust God 
as well during those times when God does seem silent or seems distant. Listen to these words from Habakkuk 3. Habakkuk says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the, the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. So essentially what Habakkuk is saying here is, when things don't go as planned, when, when things that should go this way don't do it, that the, that, the, that the trees don't blossom in the way that they should, and they're barren. And, 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 the, and the, the animals don't produce in the way that they should, and you lose out on, on the profit that you possibly could have been making that year. Habakkuk said, even though those things might happen, he says this, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Even when things are going astray, even when all seems bad and all is lost, Habakkuk reminds us of what Noah did. I will rejoice in the Lord no matter what. So at some point, no matter what you are walking through, the sun will come out. The waters will recede and you can rejoice again. And that's a promise from God. The second way that God moves towards Noah is by giving him a sign. And we see this sign in the sending out and return of the dove in verses 8 through 11. So the dove bringing back the olive leaf brings Noah this, this glimpse of hope. This glimpse of hope that he has not seen in over a year. And he keeps sending this, this bird out and this bird keeps coming back empty beaks until finally brings back this one piece of evidence that God has done it, that God has saved them, that God has delivered them, that God has given them peace upon the earth again. So it's a pinprick of, li of light in the cloudy skies. So this is a good reminder to us that that God does not always spare us the distress of suffering because he has a purpose in such things for ourselves and for others. But always, always has a way of reassuring us that he has not forgotten us. Well, a third way God remembers Noah and moves towards him is through his words. God actually speaks to Noah. So in chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, which, it, which is a whole year before uh, this, this incident here in chapter 8, verse 1, that was the last time, as far as we know, that God audibly spoke to Noah. We don't hear about God speaking to Noah during his time on the ark, and, and so we, as far as we can tell, the next time that God speaks to Noah is over a year later. So you can imagine the thought process. Here is a God that was, was constantly in communication with Noah. Noah was walking with God. He was telling him to build this, 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 this boat and preparing him to do something uh, or prepare for something that had never happened before with the flood coming. And then he's silent. 
silent for a year. And then you have chapter 8, verses 15 through 17. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. Notice, notice that when God does speak again, what does Noah do? He doesn't question God. He doesn't say, God, where the heck have you been? We have been floating around for who knows how long. We've lost count with all of these animals, with, all of, with these same people. Noah doesn't do that. The text tells us that Noah obeys. He doesn't hesitate. And why doesn't he hesitate? Well, the reason being is Noah obeys because he has been obeying even when the days have been dark and long and silent. Noah continued to obey God. And this is applicable to us too. You will also obey God best if you have been practicing obedience during the dark hours of your life. I think the reason many people abandon God and that you see many people walking away from the faith is because in their suffering, they begin walking in disobedience and stop believing God in their suffering. Well, God obviously has abandoned me, otherwise he wouldn't allow me to suffer. Otherwise he wouldn't allow me to walk through these, these hard situations, and therefore I am no longer going to be loyal to him. And so we grow impatient because we think God is somehow supposed to be on our time frame. That somehow God is supposed to be on our calendar. And so when we set things up, we expect him to do what we want him to do. Answer our prayers in the way that we want him to answer our prayers. And if you read your Bible, you know that that is never the case. And it should not be something that we, we, we expect either from God. We see this example in Noah. In chapter 8, verses 20 through 22, we see that not only does God remember Noah, but Noah remembers God. We see this in the first action after, after the doors of the ark open. The first thing that Noah does is build an altar and then sacrifice some of the clean animals and birds upon it as an offering to God. So Noah's first act in this new creation is not to kiss the ground because of his thankfulness. His first act in this new creation is to tear some wood from the ark, build an altar, and sacrifice some of these clean animals, and then get down on his knees in the mud and worship. That is his first action. Because God has remembered Noah, Noah can remember his God. And he worships him. How often do you forget to worship God after you've been delivered from a particularly hard situation? How often is that your first 
action when God opens the doors of your suffering to some relief. If you're like me, it's very often you don't, you don't worship. That's not your first action. Once the stress has been alleviated, once the crisis has been averted, once the test is over or the prayer has been answered in a, in a way in which you were hoping, uh, I typically immediately go back to some sort of normal living rather than worship. Rather than even taking a moment to thank God for answering that prayer. So a good example of this is from the New Testament the story of Jesus healing the lepers in Luke chapter 17. So you, you, some of you may be familiar with this story where ten lepers cry out, a, a brutal disease, a brutal disease that there was no healing from this. Bo- body parts are falling off, rotting off of you. They are in excruciating pain 24-7. They cry out to Jesus to heal them. He does, and only one returns to give thanks. To which Jesus then responds, Were there not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Well, Noah shows us through his act of worship how this one leper responded. That he came back in thanksgiving. That he came back in worship. And as the Lord remembers us, we in turn are to remember Him. Let Jonah's prayer in Jonah chapter 2 verse 7 be your prayer, who uh, uh, prayed this prayer in the belly of a fish, in the midst of, of, of great suffering that you will never encounter. Hopefully you will never be swallowed by a fish in the ocean. But Jonah prays this prayer, and he says, When my life was ebbing away... I remembered you. I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. In the midst of great suffering, I remembered God. Well, not only is God remembering Noah significant to him, the remembering of God is significant to the creation. Because it's in these next verses that those things that were destroyed are now being recreated. So the significance of recreating the earth here in these verses is that it tells us what God means for his creation to be like. So in chapter 8, verse 1, we see the first echo of the original creation story when Moses, the author of Genesis, tells us, and God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. Now, we might not think anything about that. We might think just God is kind of blowing the water away, and he is at some level. But the word wind here is the same word for spirit in chapter 1, verse 2, way at the very beginning of creation that says, and the spirit of God, or you could say the wind of God, was hovering over the face of the waters. So we see just from this simple gesture of language that Moses is giving to us, we see that God is not trying to go at this from a different angle now. God has not, isn't, isn't hitting the reset button on creation 
to kind of tweak it a little bit and say, you know what, if I just did this, this right here and changed this up a bit here, uh, Adam and Eve probably wouldn't, wouldn't have uh, drawn from the tree. And things would be a-okay. That is not what is happening in this new creation. God's original creation is still very good. His original plan is still very good. And His original plan is still the same. True flourishing found in walking with God. Nothing has changed. Another echo of the original creation is found in, in three verses. First in chapter 8, verse 17. Then in chapter 9, verse 1, and in verse 7, with the command to be fruitful and multiply. And again, points us back to creation in Genesis chapter 1, in verse 28 this time. So in chapter 1 and 2, there were, there were four commands, if you remember. I pointed those out in several sermons ago that were given at creation, but only one of these four commands show up here in this recreation narrative. And that is the command to be fruitful and multiply. And over and over again, God says it to them. You might have, may have caught that when I was reading, reading the text. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Be fruitful and multiply. Multiply. Fill the earth. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Why does God do that? Why doesn't he remind them of these other three commands that he was given? Well, for one, he doesn't need to. The command to work and the command to subdue the earth are still in place. They're kind of obvious commands. The command to avoid the tree of knowledge has been broken. It's no longer there, so they could, that no longer applies here. But the command to be fruitful and multiply is a different kind of command than these others. Because it tells us the reason God is concerned that life will go on is because ultimately this fills the earth with his glory. Numbers 14.21 says, All the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. I've never really given that any thought when I saw that. I just assumed that it was just kind of this substance of God's glory that was just floating about us in some sort of way until I began to kind of dig into that and read a little John Piper who, uh, who reminded me of this and says that this, this filling of the earth with his glory is us. It's his creation. Are those who are created in the image of God. That is why he says be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. You need more convincing? Habakkuk again, 2.14, gives even more details to this idea. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We are the ones who hold the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Not the animals. Not the trees. Us, those created in the image of God. So the end goal of creation pre-fall and the end goal of creation uh, post-fall are exactly the same. The glory of God. So this repetition and then the commands that follow, if you saw the commands there about God giving now all of creation for man to live upon, the animals as well as the plants 
to, 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 to feed upon. And then there's also this, what, what seems random in chapter 9, and, and I even asked the question when I was studying the text this week, why is this here? Why does God tell us what we need to do with murderers all of a sudden? And the reason why he gives this, these, this sort of, uh, of context here is to remind us that life is precious, that life is God's goal, not death. Death is of the curse. So they are there to remind us of the gravitas that all of our lives hold. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says this is what we are to do with our lives. To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Because life points us to God, our lives are meant to point to God. And the way life is established through God's act of renewing is through this act of covenant. Which is uh, carried over into our third point of renewing. The way we receive this renewal happening is by God's initiative towards us in establishing a covenant with his creation. So there, there have been hints of covenant throughout the very beginning of creation. So we'll call, that's typically uh, Bible scholars will call the first couple of chapters of Genesis this, uh, this creation covenant. Even though you don't see the word covenant there, there is this kind of underlying idea that, that God has promised his creation something, that he's going to care for it, he's going to preserve it, he's going to keep it, he's going to watch over it. But it's not until Genesis chapter 6, verse 18, that the actual word covenant is used by God when he says that he will establish a covenant with Noah. So the fact that God chooses to renew his commitment to his promise in light of the truth of 821, which tells us all of creation is evil, all of creation is wicked, the same things that you saw happen before the flood, God essentially says are going to happen again. It's going to happen. So the fact that God chooses to renew his commitment to his creation in spite of 821 tells us that God is not like us. That God is not fickle. When someone wrongs us or offends us, we disown them. We shun them. We, we speak poorly about them. Uh, we treat them different. Even, even if, they, if, if, they say we, if we say we forgive them, we still kind of, just kind of, the, the relationship's not the same anymore. I can't be around you. I forgive you, but I just can't be around you. That's not the God of the Bible. God above all says this in verse 21. I know you will sin against me again. Your hearts are wicked. They are drawn in this direction of wickedness. And I am promising you that instead of constantly destroying you until you get it right, so hitting that reset button, I am going to renew you through covenant. So the implication here in chapter 8, verse 21, is God would be completely justified in wiping out every generation of humanity by means of a great judgment. So when God felt like, you know what, this is enough, 
I've had enough of this again. I'm just going to wipe creation out and start all over again. God would be completely justified in doing so. You deserve to die in that way. I deserve to die in that way. But the only thing that holds this back is his grace and mercy towards us. It's not you. It's not how good you think you are or, or, or not doing things that you know you shouldn't be doing. That is not what holds back God's wrath. It is his grace and mercy that does so. Which then tells us that mankind is not saved by anything but grace alone. In fact, we could say that God doubles down on this. Through establishing the covenant with Noah, the new creation, he commits himself to his people. Almost, we, sh- we could say, in a crazy way. He, he almost overcommits himself. We would never commit ourselves in this way to people. We wouldn't even do that with our spouse. But God bounds himself to his people. To the point that he cannot let go. He cannot get himself out of this covenant. Which just reminds us that even though we will fail God, and we have and we will, God will never fail us. He never will. So in order for this really to, to this reality to sink in, we have to understand something uh, about covenant, just briefly. So a covenant is typically made between two parties. And both parties typically have obligations in this covenant. So, so, and they have obligations towards one another. So you just think of a marriage covenant. This is, this is a covenant that is made between a man and a woman. They both have obligations, separate obligations, and some of these obligations are the same. It is not just the man having obligations and the woman doesn't have obligations, or vice versa. Both have obligations towards each other. And they are agreeing upon these certain obligations before God and before many witnesses uh, about their fulfillment of these obligations towards one another. That's a covenant. That's your typical covenant. Now, God's covenant with Noah is a bit different because we only have one party taking on obligations. So typically in, in, uh, in ancient cultures, in Old Testament culture, they would, both parties would be involved in this. They would cut animals in halves, half and they would walk through the, through the two halves of the animals and they would say, if, if, I, don't, if I don't fulfill this covenant then let this happen to me. Let me be cut in half. Let me be killed if I don't fulfill this covenant. That doesn't happen here. God doesn't cut animals open. God doesn't make Noah walk through these animals. God is the only one committing himself to a covenant here, not humanity. So in verses 8 through 17, God repeatedly refers to the covenant as my covenant, not our covenant. My covenant. So this communicates that this is a covenant in which God binds himself. He obligates himself to us that he will maintain the covenant in spite of human failure. So what this does is it makes humans the beneficiaries based solely upon God's obligation toward us, not any obligations from us. So this is this is the pattern of the gospel we're seeing here. 
in, in Noah's, in this Noahic covenant. That God is saying to Noah, I will always be the one to pursue. I will always be the one to remember. I will always be the one that keeps the covenant. I will always be faithful to you. 2 Timothy 2.13 says this, If we are faithless, and we will be, He, God, remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. So if I was faithless or unfaithful toward Tara, my wife, I would deny who I am as her husband because I have failed to fulfill my covenant obligations toward her. So I negate those things. For God to be unfaithful toward us, to break covenant, would be to deny who he is. He would cease to be God. This is why God leaves a remnant And this is why God restores the remnant. Because he has already made a covenant with his creation before creation was created. And so to destroy all of creation, Noah included, would have made God unfaithful. He would have ceased to have been God. So let me explain what I mean. Because I think Paul gives us a piece of the puzzle here in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4. When he says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That means if you are in Christ, you have repented and believed the gospel. God chose you before creation. Before Genesis chapter 1. Before the foundation of the world. This means that God has made a covenant with us. And affirming his covenant with us through the preservation of Noah and his family. Now I've always, I've, I've wondered. Even as I've studied the, this, the, the, the flood narrative. Why, why, didn't, why didn't God just hit the reset button? Why, why, didn't, why didn't he just clear it all out? Why didn't he just do that? Why didn't he just start it? He could have done that, right? He could have just started over with a new creation and we would have been none the wiser. We would have read the Bible and we would have thought nothing about it. But Ephesians 1.4 is the answer to that question. He chose us before the foundation of the world. So if God were to hit the reset button, then what what he chose would cease to be true. Would cease to exist. So Noah's sacrifice in chapter 8, verse 20, is Noah acknowledging this reality that it's God who saves his people. That that someone else must intercede on behalf of humanity in order for humanity to be saved. In order for the promises of God to come true, something supernatural has to happen. And when we fast forward to the New Testament, we know that this someone who steps in to save us from this, gen- this sinful generation is Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the clear reminder of the gospel here in this flood narrative. 
God, I think that, that probably has been covered up with, with a lot of presuppositions uh, in our life that have been wrong, and we've missed the gospel here. We've missed uh, the reality of you preserving a people for yourself. We've, we've missed the truth of, of you choosing us before the creation of the world, that you had to continue um, with this remnant through um, the godly line of Seth. And so, God, we, 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 we continue to be thankful for how you are, are, are calling a people to yourself, um, that you're continually calling us um, to yourself through Christ. And so, God, I pray for those who um, may not know that truth or may have a misunderstanding of that truth, that somehow they contribute, that somehow that, they, that, that Noah was able to stick the paddles out the side of the ark and get himself to safe passage on his own, help us to, to, to understand and realize that that is not true. That it is by grace that we have been saved through faith so that no one may boast. That it is all in Christ alone. And we pray all of this in his name. Amen.